Hey guys, before we get started with our message today, I just wanna pray together over Ukraine this morning. Let's all bow our heads and pray together. God of peace, God of justice, we pray for the people of Ukraine today. We pray for peace. We pray for the laying down of weapons. We pray for those who fear tomorrow that your spirit of comfort would draw near to them. We pray for those in power, who have power over war or over peace. We pray for wisdom and discernment and compassion to guide their decisions. And above all, we pray for your precious children at risk and in fear that you would hold them, that you would protect them. We pray this in the name of Jesus, the Prince of Peace at work in this world. Amen. Thanks for doing that with me. You know, have you guys noticed on TV the rise of something called the anti-hero? It's in shows like Breaking Bad or Ozark or Mad Men. It's this complex, kind of morally ambiguous character that starts off making a bad decision. Maybe a decision to save their life or their family or their job. But as the show goes on, this bad decision just kind of snowballs, and they have to keep making bad decisions to stay on the path that they've chosen. And you see them slowly give themselves over to the bad, all the goods getting pushed out of their lives, and they're just taking in bad choice after bad choice, maybe tolerating bad influences or slowly compromising their morals. I find this kind of show like really addicting to watch because you're just watching this slow fade from a good guy to a bad guy. But this story is all over our television right now, right? Of people who tolerate certain influences and compromise their morals and end up leading toward destruction or chaos. And it was crazy, as I was reading our text for today, I noticed the same exact story playing out. I get sucked into these kind of stories and it was really cool to see this in scripture so many years before. We see an example of a good church with many commendable attributes and we watch as they make choices to tolerate untrue teaching and compromise their morals, and it leads them down a road that corrupts them and damages them and leads to destruction. It's gonna be a fun morning, right? This week, we're continuing in our series called Seven, where Jesus is addressing the seven churches um, in his book, Revelation. And in this book, he's... Um, revealing these things to his disciple John, who's exiled on the island of Patmos and left to die. John received this revelation from Jesus, these words and these pictures, these encouragements and these judgments, which then he was tasked with writing down and giving to the churches. And just like we've discussed, it's Jesus reviewing these churches. You've noticed that there's a, a commendation or a condemnation with each church involved, that Jesus is rebuking them or encouraging them because these are real churches in real cities with real Christians experiencing real situations. And they're receiving these corrections from Jesus because Satan is attacking their worship. He's trying to divert or distort their worship, their love of God and their love of others, or he's trying to get them to neglect their worship altogether. And it's good to remember as we read these letters, what may be true of them in Revelation also may be true of us today, us as a church and us personally. These letters are really interesting. I love them. 
And I'm gonna set things up a little differently today because I'm a different person. I'm up here preaching today and I get to set it up how I wanna set it up, right? So I'm gonna set up a little different than Eric has in the past. There's some similarities with each letter if you've uh, been paying attention as we go through it. There's similarities that each letter holds back to back. So each letter begins with a note to the angel of the church that it's addressing. And then it sets up something that we need to know about Jesus, who Jesus is, his character. Maybe it's his deity or his right to rule or his authority. Every letter has these two things. They also always have a proclamation in which Jesus says, I know, I know what you've been up to. I know the things that you're doing well. I know where you dropped the ball too. Jesus knows these churches deeply and intimately. But then there's also this uh, promise that every letter ends with, a, a promise to overcome. So all these letters have these things in common, and you'll see it next week when we go through the next church, too. It's cool to see these patterns. But just nerd out with me for like one more second, because this is my favorite part. These letters create a structure, and the author does this intentionally. It's a structure that's used in different literary elements. It's called a chiastic structure. It's really cool, it's a cyclical development where the plot or the main points of a story mirror each other. So as you can see, we've got A, B, C, D, normal, right? But then it goes C prime, B prime, A prime. So those echo each other. We have seven churches that fall into this category. So we've got Ephesus, uh, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea. And they all mimic each other. So Ephesus being A, Laodicea being A prime, they are dealing with similar issues and you walk it in. But in the middle, you're just left with one thing, right? Thyatira, which is what we're going through today. So what's so important about Thyatira? Why is it the middle of the structure? Well, let me tell you why it's important. Today's letter to the ancient church in Thyatira is at the middle of the chiasm. And this is something that John, the author, would have done intentionally because it's the arguably most important letter to all the churches. It holds the central theme, the main idea, the big thing Jesus wants to get across, not just to Thyatira, but to all the seven churches, to us today. So we're in for a treat today, right? I'm excited, are you guys excited? Yes, oh, way to be awake today, church, I'm loving it. What we're gonna see today is that despite the attacks, on the worship, despite the failings of the churches, there is hope. There is hope, even if the words of Jesus sting or slap you in the face a little bit. There is hope in Jesus that you can rest in because if you repent, and if you do, you will overcome. I can't wait to dig in, so we're just gonna do that. We're gonna make it happen, all right? Let's flip open to Revelation 2 continuing talking through the churches. You can follow along on the screen. We're reading about Thyatira today. Let's read verses 18 and 19 together. The angel of the church, to the angel of the church in Thyatira write, these are the words of the son of God whose eyes are like blazing fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. I know your deeds, your love and faith your service and perseverance, and that you are now doing more than you did even at first. All right, there's a lot to get into here, but first let's talk about the context of the city Thyatira. Like we said, this is a real place with real Christians writing to a real situation. So what's going on in Thyatira? Well, in Thyatira, think about a blue collar city. 
This city is built on, on trade guilds, which is a group of tradesmen that work together on the same trade, and we have proof that there's a bunch of different trades, trade guilds in Thyatira. Some of the big ones being like dyes or um, linens. There's all these ancient inscriptions that point to a really, really strong bronze trade guild here. And what's important about these trade guilds is that each trade guild had a false god that they worshiped to. So for your, for your trade to succeed, you had to worship and sacrifice to this false god. The trade guild was embedded in this unrighteousness, so like it directly embedded into the economy of this city was immorality and worship of false gods. And if you didn't worship the pagan god associated with each trade guild, then you weren't allowed to trade. You had no income, no life, no sustainability. So we're starting to see the predicament maybe that the church of Thyatira finds itself in with an economy that's so embedded with this immorality. But as we read in verse 18, Jesus enters on the scene. He's got eyes of fire, and what does he have on his feet? Bronze. He has burnished bronze. He's speaking to the things of Thyatira, the things it's known for. And it's almost like he's saying, oh, you think you have bronze, but wait till you see what I've got. I've got bronze too. And unlike your false gods that you worship at the trade guilds, I am the true God of the church of Thyatira. He describes himself as the son of God. That's one of like two instances in Revelation where son of God is used and it points to his deity, his authority. He says, I am the authoritative one here. I've got the bronze plating and armor, the authority to give new names and new life. This is a beautiful picture of Jesus that we see right at the beginning of this passage. And initially, this looks like a good review, right? Those were good things that I read, that we read together. Those are good things that the church is doing. I mean, this is a church that I probably would want to be a part of if I was in Thyatira. They seem loving and warm and hospitable, like they want to serve people in their community. On the outside, they're crushing it, right? But you know, sometimes in the American church, we can maybe learn from Thyatira in this. We fall short of actually doing the things we know are right, right? We know the right things on the inside, but we find ourselves not doing it on the outside, and the church in Thyatira is the opposite. They are outwardly showing their faith well. They have an active faith that's alive and it's shown in their love, in their service, in their patient endurance of one another. So maybe this is why Thyatira is in the middle of the chiasm, right? Maybe this is it, they're the only church that doesn't receive anything bad, just good reviews for the church of Thyatira. Well, let's read on, let's see if that's the case. We're gonna keep going in Revelation 2, starting in verse 20. Nevertheless, I have this against you. Well, there goes that theory, that's not, that's not it. <laughs> I have this against you, you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophet. By her teaching, she misleads my servants into sexual immorality and the eating of food sacrificed to idols. I have given her time to repent of her immorality, but she is unwilling. So I will cast her on a bed of suffering and I will make those who commit adultery with her suffer intensely unless they repent of her ways. I will strike her children dead. Then all the churches will know that I am he who searches hearts and minds and I will repay each of you according to your deeds. Now I say to the rest of you in Thyatira, to you who do not hold to her teaching and have not learned Satan's so-called deep, so deep secrets, I will not impose any other burden on you except to hold on 
to what you have until I come. So here's the thing. Thyatira didn't receive just a good review, right? There's some obvious issues going on here. They were warm-hearted but empty-minded. Everyone in this text receives the good words, right? The, the commendation, the affirmation that they're doing good things. They have love and faith and service and patient endurance. They all receive that outwardly. But then Jesus goes off on them. And the harsh stuff goes towards one group and not another. So what's the difference between these two groups is what we have to ask when we look at the text. It's tolerance. You know, in life, we all tolerate some stuff, but only to certain extents, right? We don't tolerate everything. Like, when I'm eating food, I tolerate Brussels sprouts. I do. I'll eat them as a side if I'm feeling healthy or something like that, or if they have cheese on them. But I'm not gonna, I will not tolerate every entree becoming Brussels sprouts. That's something, amen, yeah, preach it today. We're <laughs> delivering the good word of God. I will not tolerate that. Tolerance is what this, this text says, and we draw some lines around that. Some were tolerating the teaching of Jezebel, and others were not. So you might be thinking at this point, who is Jezebel? What's going on with this lady? She seems a little sketchy, doesn't she? So there's a few things that scholars believe about Jezebel. First of all, is that maybe it's not actually pointing to like a singular woman named Jezebel in, in the Thyatira church. Maybe it's not doing that. It's more of a blanket statement of false female teachers. Uh, it's, it's kind of a general term for a false female teacher, someone who's not teaching uh, the truth in the church. Jezebel is actually a reference, the name Jezebel is a reference to a story in 1 Kings, starting in, I think, chapter 16 to 21. It's the story of Jezebel. And Jezebel, the real Jezebel, the first Jezebel, she was this terrible queen of ancient Israel. She introduced idolatry and immorality to the Israelites that lasted for hundreds of years. And she was even condemned by the prophet Elijah. But eventually, her persuasive message of idolatry and immorality led to the exile of the, of the Israelite people from their land. So maybe the text calls the false teacher in Thyatira, Jezebel, because she's leading them towards the same idolatry and immorality that the real Jezebel did in 1 Kings. The message of Jezebel to Thyatira could be something along the lines of, join the trade guild, go ahead and do it and worship the gods of the trade guild, even if it means having sex with temple prostitutes or eating food that's been dedicated to idols, you can do that and still be a Christian. Just do whatever you need to, to get ahead in life. I mean, you, you gotta make a living, right? Her teaching in summary was to keep up appearances with God. She never said that you have to renounce your faith. She never said you had to stop being a Christ follower. She said you can just do both. You know, you can go worship in the temple here. You can spread love and kindness over here. You can be a devout Christian over here. Just do whatever your heart is telling you. And on top of that, she seems to have this idea too that sin in the body doesn't really have a long lasting real effect on you. That spiritually it doesn't affect you and that God was just cool with it all as long as you kept up appearances. If we continue with just this careful reading of the text as we kind of comb through it, you're gonna see here that Jesus rebukes the message here, not the messenger. Jesus rebukes the message. The issue of this text isn't necessarily who or the gender of who is preaching or teaching at this moment. It's the content of what is being taught. 
And as you've heard, what's being taught is clearly an issue. And the Jesus believers in Thyatira, they've grown tolerant of the message that Jezebel is bringing. Now, let's talk about tolerance a little bit. Tolerance, uh, not all of it, in and of itself is bad. I know it's kind of a buzzword in culture, tolerance, but there are some good things, believe it or not, that we can learn from tolerance. It's good to show self-restraint and humility when we address this topic. As mature people, hopefully, we can tolerate differences of opinion and not wish harmful things on people who think differently or act differently or looked differently than us. But actually, I firmly believe that as Jesus followers, as Jesus followers, we're called to more than just tolerating things. We're called to love people, right? We're called to love people. I mean, can you imagine if my parents or Aaron, my spouse, came up to me and was like, man, Liv, I tolerate you. I just tolerate you so much. I'd be so offended. We would have a big conversation. <laughs> or what if God looked at us here today and said, oh, you, I tolerate you. That's not really comforting, is it? We're called to love as our Father loved. God so loved the world that he sent his Son. We're called to pray for those who persecute us and love even our enemies with this deep, transformative love over tolerance. But in this instance, in Revelation 2, the tolerance we're talking about and mentioned here is more of an overlooking of evil. It's not really this conversation that we're having over here about love and like being um, willing to have conversation with people. It's about an overlooking of evil, of immorality, an acceptance and a patience for it. And here's the truth of the matter as we see it in this text and just lean in and get this. This is kind of the heart of what Jesus is saying here. A Christian cannot tolerate all things because God is not tolerant of all things. Now what we can be is patient and loving in differences of opinion. But what we cannot be is affirming of everything, especially of injustice or immorality or unholy behavior in the eyes of God. Unconditional love does not equate to unconditional tolerance. So, how do we fight against this bad kind of tolerance that we're talking about, this overlooking of evil? The tolerance that corrupts and leads to destructions that we're seeing in Revelation 2. Well, first, let's recognize that there's two parties at fault here, right? We got the false teacher, but then also the followers, the people who are following the false teacher. And it seems like Jesus is pretty harsh with both of them. The text says that he will cast Jezebel onto a bed of suffering after giving her the chance to repent, and she does, and he'll cast her on a bed of suffering, and he will strike her children, her followers, dead. Yikes, that's pretty severe. God takes teaching seriously. He knows a deceptive teacher can lead people astray. In James 3, it warns us of this, that teachers will be held to a higher judgment and standard, a stricter standard in God's eyes. But throughout the whole of scripture too, God also lays out a lot of responsibility for those who are following teachings, right? There's so many scriptures about judging correctly or being wise or following in the way of the Lord or not being held captive by hollow theology. That's why it's so important to know the word, to know this, to dig deeper into scripture, right? This is why we do things like provide sermon notes that you guys can take notes on and that have reflective questions and small group study guides. We want you to dig deep. We want you to know that there are false teachers out there. 
And you can't just accept everything you hear from the pulpit as truth. So don't just sit there and be spoon-fed, but you have to hold this intention too, right? Because you can't just sit out there assuming that every teacher is a false teacher. I mean, it's kind of oxymoronic for me to be up here and be like, make sure that you're discerning and that you know things, but also you can trust me because I'm up here, right? A little oxymoronic. But the point of it is this. It's just about being caring enough about what you're hearing to get curious, to dig deeper, to, to read scripture more. A sermon should be a springboard for deeper conversation and deeper understanding. And that's what we want for you, to dig deep into scripture. I want you to know the word so well that you don't have to take my word for it. That's what I want. And fighting against this bad kind of tolerance, it starts with that idea, but then it it moves on. We have other things that we can do too. We can shift our perspective. We can shift our perspective. There are two types of perspective that maybe we can talk about here, two lenses. The first is this. First, you could see Christ through the lens of everything. This would be the first group that's mentioned in the passage, the group that wants to worship at the temple, the, uh, the false gods, and also be a devout Christian. This group sees Jesus based on everything in their life. They follow whatever their heart is telling them to tolerate. I see Jesus over here, but I like what's going on over here, and also this still feels good to do, so I'm gonna do this too. It's so easy to shape Jesus into who we want him to be and have him be cool with the things we're doing just because we want to do them, right? But following a pretend Jesus, what's the point? What good is there in following a God of your own creation? And that leads us to the second perspective that you can choose. You could choose to see everything through the lens of Christ. The lens of the second group of the of Thyatira believers, the ones who held fast to the words of Jesus, even when others proclaimed and followed false teaching. They had a bigger and wider mindset and perspective. They had a kingdom mindset, a kingdom mindset that filtered everything through the lens of Christ. Everything coming my way, I choose to view it through Jesus, through his church, through his word, through his spirit. Because inherent in this perspective is this. Jesus decides what the church tolerates. The church does not decide what Jesus tolerates. So Jesus in this passage, he looks at the false teachers and what they're teaching and the followers and what they're following and he says, some of you are cool with this? Even worse, some of you are saying that I'm cool with this? I am not cool with this. He's saying that they're living two lives worshiping the temple gods over here and worshiping Jesus over there. It doesn't work. Jesus says, appearances don't impress me. I know your hearts. I'm the one who knows hearts and minds. I know your minds. I know your motives. Sometimes we act in the church as if Jesus doesn't know us. This passage points to the exact opposite. There's so much language that shows the intimacy of Christ with his church. He knows them. He knows the context of Thyatira. He knows what they're going through and what they have gone through. And he knows you today for good or for bad. Faking your faith does not trick Jesus. And it does nothing for you spiritually as well. That's why we hammer the point home here at first that head knowledge has to lead to heart change. A disciple of Jesus has to have both. Because when we look at Thyatira, like really what was the difference going on here? 
Why could some people recognize this false teaching and some people couldn't? Why did some people tolerate it and some people didn't? Well, one group had a mind shaped by Jesus and a heart changed by Jesus. The other was pretending. Appearances are easy, guys, but Jesus knows you. And he wants you, the full you, nothing held back, not your display, not your appearances. Jesus wants you, not your display. When it comes to faith, there's both internal and external changes that we're called to make, you know? Like as we've been going through this series, maybe you've seen that example in churches. You know, in Ephesus, for example, they had a lot of internal change, a lot of good knowledge, but no external change. And then here in Thyatira, we see outside really good, devoted Christ followers. But on the inside, some of them, their hearts were very different. It kind of reminds me of acting, right? I mean, I don't know if you guys could tell just by like my whole general vibe, but I do theater. Yes, so I do theater, shocking, right? (laughs) But funny thing is sometimes, okay, 95% of the time, I get typecasted as a specific role when when I audition for something. You can maybe make guesses about that in your brain, but this is what I get typecasted as 95% of the time as the dumb, ditzy, like airhead character in any like play or musical that I audition for. That's insulting, right? I mean, I guess I'm just a really good actor. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But after like the seventh time this happened, I asked my mom, I was like, mom, am I just dumb? Like, what is happening? Why does this keep happening to me? And she said something along the lines of, Olivia, you're not dumb. You're just really good at playing dumb. I was like, thank you. (laughs) Some people in this context, though, they were playing. Some in this context were playing church. They were acting church. But other people were living as the church. Jesus is looking at them and saying, Thyatira, I know you. Some of you haven't changed. You're just faking it. You're just pretending. You're just keeping up appearances and following things that I haven't even told you to do. You're going through the motions. My love and my grace and my truth has not changed you. We can all get caught in that trap from time to time, right? Jesus looks at us today and says the same thing that he says to the church in Revelation. He says, I know, I know you. I wanna see that transformation take place in you. I want the whole you, your whole life, not just what you give me on a Sunday morning. So what do we do this morning? If we find ourselves playing church instead of being the church today, there's a couple of things to realize. First of all, you don't have to change to come to Christ. You don't have to do that. You don't have to clean up your life. You don't have to reach a certain level of perfection before God accepts you, no. You can come to Christ right now and he will throw his arms around you. What you have to do is recognize your sin, recognize the barrier that puts between you and Jesus and then repent of that. And Jesus always gives opportunity to repent, right? Even to Jezebel, the false teacher. He says she chose not to repent. Her followers, they have the opportunity to repent. And repenting is just agreeing that with God that sin hurts and it causes destruction. And you turn away from that. You turn towards that forgiveness that is abundant, and I mean abundant in Jesus. But there's another part that follows this. Being the church means that you do become changed. You're changed as you follow Christ, right? 
Following Jesus means you're given a new life, a new name. He has the authority to do that. That's revelation through and through. Christ has the authority to give new life and new name. He has that authority, and because he gives you a new life, no one's allowed to bring the old life along. The first group in Thyatira, they weren't being transformed. Their hearts were following so many things, not just God. They were bringing their old life with them. But the old life is left behind. Do we fail at this? Yes, all the time, for sure. But that's what's beautiful about life with Jesus, that as you follow him more closely, you strive more and more towards that new life ahead and not go back to the old life behind. I used to think about Christian life in this very linear sense, you know? Like start at point A, end at point B, and it's just like a straight line, everything is easy going. Yeah, nice. But then life happens, you realize it's more complex than that. So I started thinking about it like point A, point B is over there, and then there's like just a bunch of squigglies. Like God takes you over here, and sometimes it's crazy, but God gets you there. I found that that's not even like super good to explain. So I started thinking about life like this. Christianity is a journey. Your faith is a journey. And there's all these little circles that as you keep growing, they keep getting bigger. But you're always kind of returning to some things. Maybe you're relearning a lesson. You're kind of going towards God and away from God at different points in your faith, and that's part of the journey. But whenever I find myself coming back this way, you know, back to point A instead of going towards point B, you know what it reminds me of? Repentance. Repentance is the thing that makes you turn and go back towards God. Repentance is the thing that makes you stop doing the stuff that's your old life and brings you back towards God. Every time there's a moment where I'm leaning back to that old life, repentance is what turns me around back on my journey towards God. Maybe this morning you need that kind of visual for your faith. Maybe you're finding yourself tolerating in the bad way certain teachings in your life, more than you anticipated, more than you realized. Just remember, you're on a journey. And you can repent and turn, make it right back towards God. So let's think about your faith. When are times that you have done that? You know, when have you pivoted? How have you changed? Maybe you notice that you're really starting to treat other people better, right? That annoying coworker. Maybe you've been pouring out that extra grace and patience and now you're actually kind of connecting with them. That feels good. Or maybe you've been praying about your anger, talking to Jesus about that and the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you, you've recognized, you know, I don't yell as much in traffic anymore. That's good. (laughs) Maybe that porn addiction, maybe even that. You've talked to somebody about it and you're making good steps. You're not looking at media late at night anymore and you're holding other people in accountability with you and you're taking steps in the right direction there. Maybe you're living more generously or praying more fervently or reading the word of God and trying to live your life by it. These are amazing things that we've changed in our lives, right? Let's think forward on the journey now. Let's think forward to God. What is Jesus calling you to change today? What is Jesus illuminating that you're tolerating in your life? Maybe you need to start treating others better. Maybe you need to ask for the Spirit's help in controlling your anger. Maybe that porn addiction isn't going away. You need to tell somebody about it. Maybe God is convicting you to live more generously or pray more in your life and be connected to him or read the word and follow it. Whatever you're being convicted of today, stop tolerating 
what is less than what God has for you, than what God wants for you, than what, what God desires for you. Because guess what? The true hope found in the message to Thyatira, the true hope found in Jesus is that when you turn to Jesus and repent, you will overcome. And that's how we're gonna end our message today. So let's read what he says to the church in Thyatira who will overcome in him. Verses 26 to 29. To the one who is victorious and does my will to the end, I will give authority over the nations. The one will rule them with an iron scepter and will dash them to pieces like poverty. Nope, like pottery. Just as I have received authority from my father, I give it to you. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the church. Jesus says he will give us authority, his authority given to him by the Father to overcome, to be victorious. For those who hold on, who don't tolerate these false teachings, who do his will, give themselves over to him. He will give them what? The morning star. That's a weird thing to give, right? Seems a little... It seems cool, but I don't really know what it means. Well, get this. This is one of my favorite things about these letters to the churches, that every promise that Jesus gives to people who overcome, it's found later in Revelation. It's explained later in the book. So this promise, it points towards Revelation 21 and 22, this new life, this new hope in Jesus. And it says this, I'm gonna read it to you. Revelation 22:16 says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to give you this testimony to the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the bright morning star. Jesus says he's gonna give us the morning star. Guys, he is the morning star. He is the morning star. When you give yourself over to Jesus, he gives you himself right back. He is the reward as you hold on as you reject tolerating things that just give you half a life. The fullness of life is in the reward of Jesus. What a beautiful promise we get today. We get Jesus himself and that makes it all worth it. He is worth it. It's worth it to give ourselves fully to Jesus and to get him in return. So let's respond to this great promise of God today. As we worship, as we sing these words, let it just travel from your head down to your heart. Let it change you. Because the reward is Jesus and he is great. Let's stand and worship him today.